Uh, the rest of us, turn in your Bibles to Psalm 77. We're going to spend some time in Psalm 77. Yes, we're going to spend most of our time in Psalm 77. I'm going to read it, the Word of God. Psalm 77. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. With your arm, with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled, the clouds poured out water, the skies gave forth thunder, your arrows flashed on every side, the crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind, your lightnings lighted up the world, the earth trembled and shook, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. And we all say the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So if you have read that psalm, you recognize that it is a, a song of great travail and, and anxiety and worry. It is a song, uh, we read this in the, in, the, in the preface to the song, to the choir master, according to Jedithun, uh, a psalm of Asaph. Now, Asaph is one of the psalm writers, and he is writing in the days, most likely, in the days of the Babylonian captivity. And as he looks around, he notices that things are not as they should be, that things are difficult, and that his people, who have, some of which have taken new names, and some of which have allowed culture to, to um, come into their homes, and they've allowed the culture to um, draw them away from, from Yahweh, and Asaph is writing this and he's saying, Lord, my heart breaks. I'm overwhelmed with grief and worry and anxiety. And I think about this, um, and I think about this with regard to most of us today. Uh, how many of you uh, in the course of this week have been anxious about anything? Anybody? How many of you have struggled to sleep because of the weightiness of that which you were worried about? How many of you have literally felt physiological pain from the worry that you have in this world? 
Some of you know what I'm talking about. And so what we're going to do is we're going to go on a journey in Psalm 77. And we're going to see where Asaph is. And we're going to see some, some prescriptions that the Lord gives us for help in the midst of some of the, the struggles that we have. Now, John Piper says this about the Psalms. He says, most of you know intuitively, because you've read the Psalms, you see yourselves so often. The experience of the psalmist is your experience, and that is no accident. God put the psalms in the Bible not only to call us to great heights of praise and worship, but also to comfort us in very dark seasons of discouragement and doubt. The strategy of fighting this kind of darkness is what I want us to look at this morning. Indeed, it is the strategy of living the whole Christian life. Only now we have so much more truth and history and more of God and Jesus Christ than in the Old Testament than those saints did. But the design and the strategy in the old is the same even as it is in our arsenal of truth today. That's what John Piper says. Now, when I think about what is being said here, look at how this begins. First of all, we see that Asaph comes and he says, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. Now, this first verse is actually the preface for all of the verses that come following it. And, and I love what he says because he says in the midst of um, unrest, in the midst of the trouble, in the midst of the, the soul searching and the wearying nature of what I have, notice where Asaph goes. He does not run to other things, but he runs to the Lord. He runs to Yahweh and he says, I come to you. I'm upset, I'm overwhelmed, I'm burdened, and I have a relationship with you, so I am coming at you right now. And he does not pull any punches. And what I love about this psalm is that it is real and it is so true. Notice what he says in, in verse two. He says, in the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. And so that's a good thing, right? So in the day of our trouble, where should we go? Now, some of us have a natural propensity. When you get worried, when you get overwhelmed, when you get really, really anxious, like where do you run to? Do you run to the Lord or do you run to maybe the next show that's on your Netflix list to watch, right? You're trying to numb the pain. I mean, some people might run to a show. Some people might try to hide. Uh, some people actually take a nap. Anybody here take a nap in the midst of stress? I totally do that. My wife knows I'm stressed based upon the number of hours, you know, that, I mean, that's just, that's sad, you know? We get stressed. Some people run to alcohol. Some people run to other drugs. Some people run to sex. Some people run to pornography. Some people run to all sorts of areas that they think will bring them momentary comfort in the midst of a world that seems like it's falling down. But Asaph runs to the Lord, and that's a good place for us to be. He goes on to say this, in the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. What that means is, is that he is praying. He is asking the Lord, Lord, I'm searching, I'm crying out, and I'm not even wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. Now that's an interesting place because even though Asaph goes to the right place, even though he's writing a psalm about going to the right place, he's basically saying, my soul will not be comforted. I will not allow my soul to be comforted. Thomas Brooks 
says this. He's a Puritan writer. Here's what he says. He says, my soul refuses to be comforted regarding this particular verse. He says, poor I that I that am, he's a Puritan, so give me a second. Poor I that am but of yesterday have known some of that has been so deep, that, that have been so deeply plunged into the gulf of despair that they would throw all the spiritual cordials. And, and what a cordial is, is a, a delight, sort of something that's good. It's, it's the word of God, the comfort of the people of God, the worship of God, the spiritual cordials, that they would throw all the spiritual cordials that have been tendered to them against the walls. Essentially, somebody comes and, and you pick up the word of God and rather than reading the word of God, you take it and you throw it up against the wall and you're like, how can that help me? How can that do anything for me? They were strong, is what Brooks says, they were strong in reasoning against their own souls and resolved against everything that might be a comfort and support unto them. So basically, any word of comfort they have resolved within their souls not to believe. They have been much set against all the ordinances and religious services. They have cast off all holy duties themselves and refused to join with others in them. Yea, they have, out of a sense of sin and wrath, which has laid hard upon them, refused the necessary comforts of this life, even to the overthrow of natural life. And Brooks goes on to say, and yet, and yet, out of this horrible pit, this hell upon earth hath God delivered their souls and given them such manifestations of his grace and favor that they would not exchange them for a thousand worlds. Oh, despairing souls, you see that others whose conditions have been as bad, if not worse than yours, have obtained mercy. God has turned their hell into a heaven. He has remembered them in their lowest state. He has pacified their raging consciences and quieted their distracted souls. He has wiped all tears from their eyes and he has been a wellspring of life under their hearts. Therefore, be not discouraged, O despairing souls, but look up to the mercy seat. You see, what's going on in this psalm is that the psalmist is saying, I am undone. In verse four, it says, you hold my eyelids open. He says, I'm, I'm, I'm crying out to you and I can't sleep at night. The burden of my soul, the anxiety of my soul is, is such a, a huge burden. I'm tr so troubled that I cannot speak. I can't even speak um, to others about this. I, I'm struggling in the midst of this. Now, one of the things that we see, uh, this is a little book by a guy named Ed Welch. He says, when I am afraid, and he speaks regarding um, anxiety and fear, you know, and, and, and listen to this. He says this, and I think this is key for us. Fear and anxiety make a prediction, okay, about the future. One of their messages is clear. Fear and anxiety both live in the future, they say there is a future threat to something I love. We fancy ourselves as prophets and we keep trusting in our predictions even though they don't come to pass. Fear and worry are prophecies. Check out the fears that you have in your life. You get that? Like, so fear and anxiety are actually prophecies about the future that we say to ourselves, about what might happen he goes on to say, when we listen, um, actually he says, fear and worry say something about our relationship with God. 
When we listen to fear and worry, we can usually notice that we are predicting the worst. And we can often detect the connection with things or people we love. But it is more difficult to hear what our fears are saying about our relationship with God. So listen even more carefully because fears and worries have everything to do with him. And he says, you can see this. You can see how God is connected to everything when a little child keeps asking why questions. Start anywhere. Why do I have a nose? Why do I have to go to bed? Why do I have, have to eat peas? Why is the sky blue? Before the fifth why, your answer has probably become, because God made it that way, now leave me alone. All of life is connected to God. Our fears and worries are no different. We are God's offspring who either run from him or run to him. Those are the only two possibilities, even when we are afraid He says this, and I'll finish this quote here. He says, so sometimes, regarding fears and anxieties, so sometimes you will see that your fears mean you are trusting in yourself rather than the Lord, but you will always find that fear and worry, get this, that fear and worry are opportunities to hear God, to either turn toward him or to keep facing him and grow in trusting him. Fear and worry are reminders. Better yet, they are opportunities. Now, this is where I want to take this book and throw it up against the wall. Because I do not view fear and anxiety as opportunities in my life. Trouble, difficulty, discord, all of those kind of things, I do not view them as opportunities. But he says this. He says, fear and worry, um, fear and worry are reminders They are opportunities. They are a string around your finger reminding you that you can trust the creator God who hears, cares, and acts. They are opportunities to know God better. What I do appreciate about that is that I see that in the midst of my own life and in the lives of others. In the midst of worry and fear, they're like a string around our finger that remind us to either run, they remind us to run to God and not to retreat from him. In the the midst of this, this is what we see, um, and this is a very difficult place for us. Um, In verse seven of Psalm 77, I mean, this is kind of the cry of our heart when we feel alone in the middle of the night um, as we struggle with these things. He says, will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? And specifically, has he shut up his compassion to his people, to me, to those I love? I mean, what an honest place this psalm leads us to. There is a, a... There's this lie that happens within Christianity that we can never come to God and question anything that he does. And yet the psalmist does it over and over again because the psalmist has a relationship with Yahweh, a relationship with God. And he says, Lord, I am struggling. I am overwhelmed. Lord, are you going to show up? Are you going to do anything about this, right? And what we find in this, and here's, here's maybe a point for us to think about, is that this psalm wants us to go from egocentrism 
to theocentrism, okay? And here's what I mean by that. If you look at the first part of this particular psalm, what you notice is that in the first six verses of the psalm, there are 18 occurrences of the first person singular pronoun. I or me, and six references to God by name, title, and pronoun. In the last eight verses from, you know, basically, you know, verses 13 through 20, there are 21 mentions of God and no personal references at all. Although maybe there might be a first person plural possessive in, our, in verse 13. I'll let you figure that out. Jason Lichty can teach you about that later. Okay, go take a Latin course. All right. But in the first six verses, 18 occurrences of the first person singular. And in the last eight verses, there is basically none but 21 mentions of God. And one of the things that, that this psalm is teaching us is this, is that we want to go from an egocentric place to a theocentric place, a place where we are consumed about us to a place where we are thinking about God and thinking about his goodness. We want to be thinking about um, all the things that God has done. As a matter of fact, I, I read this, or I actually heard this. Uh, it was funny, but I, but I think it was good enough. He actually says, uh, one commentator says, we actually need, and you can tell he's a recent commentator because he's not a Puritan because he says it like this. We have to go back to the future. And you know that, you know, I mean, that is not a, an, a Puritan, you know, who said that, right? You know, he's saying that we need to go back and think about all that God has done for his people so that we can look to the future about him fulfilling his promises and being um, able to deliver us and redeem us and to take us out of you know, really worry and anxiety and lead us to a place of really trust and faith and belief in God the Father. So really the pivot point in this psalm occurs in verse 10 and 11. Now, I want you to think about it in this way. Um, I want us to remember, ponder, and muse upon all that God has done. And he gives us that in verses 10 and 11. And here's what he says. He says, then I said, again, he's still, he's still talking about himself, right? So remember, all of these things, I can't sleep at night, I'm overwhelmed, there is no comfort. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord, I'm praying, but I'm struggling with this. But there's a turn here. There's a turn that occurs in verse 10. And it says, then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your works. Or I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Now that's an, an interesting thought. Um, what happens to some degree is that we are called to muse and to meditate and to remember all that God has done. Now, I want us to think about that term remember. Remember. One of the, the things that we have is, is oftentimes we think that the antithesis or the antonym of the word remember is to forget, but it's not. The antonym of that term, even though maybe today it is, the antonym of that term is actually to dismember, okay? to dismember rather than remember. And think about it in this way. So as we as Christians, as we are remembering, liter literally that word remember, remember means to put the members back together in one piece. That we are called to bring things back together so that they fit together. 
To dismember is to forget, is to leave ourselves in pieces, to be individually taken apart and corporately scattered. And I think today that what is going on in our secular worldview is that Satan and the forces of evil, you know, the, the unholy trinity of the world, the flesh, and the devil are doing everything that they can to dismember us, to leave us scattered in pieces so that we cannot um, think rightly about who God is and about the circumstances that we have and about a good God, a holy God, a loving God, a forgiving God. So rather than, than being dismembered, we need to be remembering these things. We are a part of the communion of saints who are called to remember God. I mean, we, we say that, right? Like even in the midst of communion, which we're not taking today, many um, tables in the midst of communion will say, in remembrance of me, right? In remembrance of me. So that every time you come to worship, you are basically trying to put yourself back together as a whole person. Actually, that's also the term integrity, Wholeness is what we're trying to get here. Wholeness as God has defined and as God promises and as God has commanded us to be whole rather than to be dismembered and fragmented. You see, um, one of the things that happens, um, and, and again, let's talk about this idea of meditation. Now, meditation today, you hear a lot of terms about meditation, right? And you hear about, uh, matter of fact, I just, just took this off the internet because we know all things are true on the internet, right? So what is mindfulness meditation? And I hear that term a lot. Like as, as a, a reserve chaplain in the Air Force, I hear a lot about mindfulness and meditation. And it's sort of a buzzword. And even, even in the corporate world today, it's a buzzword for, for mindfulness. And, and here's what they defined it as. It says, mindfulness meditation is a mental training practice that teaches you to slow down racing thoughts let go of negativity and calm both your mind and body. So far, so good. It combines meditation with the practice of mindfulness, which can be defined as a mental state that involves being fully focused on the now so you can acknowledge and accept your thoughts, feelings, and sensations without judgment. And that's where I go, eh. Because sometimes we actually need to bring judgment upon our thoughts and feelings uh, regarding what we're believing, right? So rather than, you know, this mindfulness, the other thing about meditation is, is this. Oftentimes I've been told this. I, I, matter of fact, I was in a Religion 101 class, and it was at JMU. This is like, you know, I don't know, a million years ago because I'm an old guy now. And, and the professor, I was a senior, uh, and then the professor said, we're going to do some meditation in the class. And I was like... What, what, did I just show up at church or something? Like, this is like religion 101, you know, like here I am. Now, the good news was I was a senior, uh, Katie was in that class uh, with me. You know, we were married, I think, at that point. I think, we were, were we married, I think? Because I remember just copying all of her notes uh, at that point because uh, she's way smarter than I am. And, and so I remember the, the professor said, okay, we're going to do some, we want you to empty all of your thoughts. And I was like, What? You know, and then we kind of like did it like this kind of this chain. I was like, what? Are, so I got up and left. Like, I, I just got up and left 
Because her idea of meditation was that we need to remove all the thoughts from our head. That is not a Christian view of meditation. When I talk about meditating upon the word of God, I want us to fill ourselves, not to empty ourselves. I want us to fill ourselves with the truth of God, with the attributes of God, with the word of God. And I want to be encouraged by the people of God in the midst of that. Now, that's Christian meditation. And, and I want us to think about it in, in this way. In the midst of the, the dark, um, really the, the dark soul of the night, as some Puritans would call it, in the midst of difficulty, what this psalm is teaching us to do is it's saying, I want you to take the word of God and I want you to meditate, to muse upon it, and I want you to hide it in your heart and I want that word to be beneficial to you. Here's what, here's what I mean by that. Think about, for example, uh, turning your Bibles you know, just to Romans chapter eight. Romans chapter eight, in the midst of feeling lonely and overwhelmed, You know, if, if we were just to take a verse, say Romans 8, verse, you know, you know, 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? If we just took that verse in the midst of the difficulty, now I'm not saying it's gonna remove all those things, but I'm saying that, that what Psalm 77 is, he wants you to, to dwell upon all that the Lord has done. And so if we just take that verse and we just, just stay there, copy it down, write it down, and just stay in that verse, I'm not saying that's the only verse, I'm just using that as an example. Because in the midst of the loneliness of the night, you feel as if you are alone that no one cares for your soul. But Romans 8.35 says this, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Nothing. And you may feel as if you're alone. You may think that you're alone. You may think that everybody in the world does not know how you're feeling and that nobody could feel the pain and rejection that you are feeling right now and yet when you begin to dwell upon that, who can separate me from the love of Christ? Nothing. There's something that the Holy Spirit does in the midst of your life, in the midst of your, your soul, to bring about some hope, some sense of future glory, some sense of realized glory or realized joy in the midst of this. Remember, ponder, and muse upon all that God has done. For example, here's one. When you have been rejected, when you feel like as if you've been alienated from all those people who love you, you feel like those people who were, were supposed to love you have rejected you, and you would say, nobody has gone through this like I'm going through it. And yet the word of God tells you, no, somebody has. His name is Jesus. 
You see, Jesus was spurned. Jesus was betrayed. Jesus, all these things. I mean, as a matter of fact, when, when you think, will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? And, we, and that's a rhetorical question because we know the answer is no. And has his steadfast love forever ceased? No. Are his promises at an end for all time? No. Has God forgotten to be gracious to us? No. Has he in anger shut up his compassion? No. But I will tell you that all of those questions are answered in the affirmative when it comes to who Jesus and what he did. Because all of the wrath of God, all of the judgment of God was placed upon him so that we might be reconciled to God the Father. Yeah, I've heard it said that the great ironic benediction, you know, the Lord make his face to shine upon you and, and, and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. All of that was reversed on the cross and the countenance of God was turned away from Jesus and it was turned away so that we might be saved, that we might be reconciled, that we might be adopted into the family of God. And so the truth of God's word in the midst of the dark night of the soul is helpful for us because we recognize that our elder brother Jesus has gone through far worse and our elder brother Jesus has died so that we might be reconciled and we might live. And who can separate us from the love of God in Christ? Nothing, nothing, nothing. We need that. We need that desperately. As a matter of fact, what we find is that in Psalm 77, what we actually find is this actual, um, again, if I were writing the Psalm, I probably would have done a few different things, but nobody inspired me to write it. But in verses 16 through 20, what you find is you actually find Asaph actually pondering the word of God and the events of, of, of what, have hap- what has happened. As a matter of fact, he's actually uh, bringing up Exodus chapter 15, and this is the song of Moses. Um, not the song of Moses that we necessarily sang directly, but it is the song of Moses, which is, by the way, why we sang the song of Moses today in Exodus 15, because Psalm 77 is quoting the song of Moses. Now, why is he quoting the song of Moses? Because in the dark of the night, in the midst of worry, anxiety, suffering, tribulation, he goes back to Exodus 15, and he remembers the grand act of redemption that the Lord has done in the Old Testament, and that is the Exodus. That is the Passover, and that is having the people cross through the Red Sea. Now, when he says this, again, we're in Exodus 14, you're crossing the Red Sea. Now, think about that. So, so think about the crossing of the Red Sea. This is a time when the people of God were being led out of Egypt. And so they're being led out of Egypt by Moses. And at this point, they plundered the Egyptians. They've taken gold from them. Everything seems to be going pretty well. Uh, Moses is our liberator. And you know, you can tell, you know, give me an M, give me an O, give me an S, give me an E, give me an S. What does that spell? It spells Moses. Isn't that great? You know? It doesn't take long for the people, you know, they're, they're wandering around and all of a sudden they get to the edge of the Red Sea and now the, the Egyptian army is coming against them and it's not, you know, M-O-S-E-S, it's where do we get rid of this guy, right? And what does God do? God in the 11th hour, because God is not on your timetable. Just so you know, God is not working on your time frame. At the 11th hour, God shows up and he leads the people through the Red Sea. 
And he takes them through dry land. And it says this, when the water saw you, O God, when the water saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. I'm in verse 17 of Psalm 77. The crash of your thunder was in the world when your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. Now, that's absolutely true as it happened in the Red Sea. But I also want you to know this, that when you think about the word sea, sea, S-E-A, actually represents chaos throughout ancient literature. That's why in the book of Revelation, when it says, and the sea will be no more, it's talking about the end of chaos. So in the midst of God leading his people through the Red Sea, he's actually leading them through what was once chaos into a place of provision and peace. And then as the great king, the warrior king, he destroys the armies that are arrayed against the people of God. And Asaph is reading this in the midst of the Babylonian captivity and in the midst of the night when he can't sleep and he goes, no, God is not asleep, but he's not on my timetable. God has not forgotten me, but he has redeemed me. And, and who can separate me from this love of this God? Now, when I see this occurring, there are a couple things for us to think about. We, we think about the Exodus, um, the Old Testament um, psalmist. He thought about the grand redemptive event. We think about you know, Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. And as we ponder those things, as we meditate, we are remembering ourselves. We are putting ourselves, much like, you know, um, I mean, the, the analogy is Humpty Dumpty, right? You know, Humpty Dumpty, you know, had a you know, great fall and all the king's horses and all the king's men could not put Humpty Dumpty back together again. You know, we're remembering, we're putting ourselves back together as we contemplate the resurrection, as we contemplate the gospel. We're, we're giving ourselves hope. Now, with regard to, um, there, there are two great examples. You know, we, we, we fight untruth within our minds and hearts with the truth from God's word. We see that in the Red Sea. If, if you're back in Exodus, I want to show you this too. Um, Exodus chapter uh, 15 is the song of Moses, which is, you know, that's the great, that's, <laughs> again, that's the great song. They're like, man, Moses. I mean, remember, Moses, what a terrible job he has. I mean, Moses goes from like hero to zero over and over again in the eyes of the people of God, over and over again. You know, like Moses, you're the best. Moses, you're the worst. Moses, you're the best. Moses, you're the worst, right? Well, right after we sing the song of Moses, we get to Exodus chapter 16, and then the people um, you know, come to him, the whole congregation in, in chapter 16, verse two, and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. Now, if we think about this Red Sea principle, the second principle that we think about, this truth that we have is this idea of the manna principle. You see, after they crossed over, they did what every husband and child does to their mother when they walk in the door at about five o'clock. They said, What's for dinner? 
I know that that is the question that most moms do not look forward to on a regular basis. And I don't know what it is, um, because it's, it might be, what's for dinner? You know, because, or it might be, hey, did you, did you go to the store? You know, I mean, or what'd you get at the store? You know, I, I, remember, I remember, and even today, you know, you, <laughs> this is so bad. You ever get, your, your wife comes home from the store and she brings all the groceries and you begin looking through them as if you're pillaging for something that you want to eat? And you recognize that there's nothing in there that you actually want to eat, even though she just went to the store. And then you begin to realize all the things that you wish that she had bought at the store that you could be eating right now. Or is that just me? Okay. I mean, that, that's, what's, that's what's going on right now, right? And so this, this idea of the manna principle, as we see it, you know, the people are saying, hey, what's going on? And, and here's the manna principle. You know, again, God gave the Israelites only enough for one day, although he gave enough for two days on the day prior to the Sabbath. You know, Jesus, I think he's speaking about this in Matthew chapter six, verse 34, speaking about this when he says, therefore do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. And I think that there's something about this manna principle that goes like this. First, this manna principle, it teaches the people of God to act on the grace God gives today by collecting manna and enjoying it. Today, I want you to think about this. Not about the future, because again, anxiety and fear are prophecies that we tell ourselves about the future. And the manna principle says, I want you to enjoy today what God has given you. Not tomorrow, not next week. I want you to live by the manna principle. I mean, we see that in the Lord's Prayer, right? Give us this day our daily bread. Every day, we need it. Every day. But second, it teaches them to trust him for tomorrow. Every night they went to bed with empty cupboards, and every morning they wake up wondering whether the manna will be on the ground. And every morning, for 40 years, it was. It was. You know, if you, um, and let me quote um, Ed Welch again. If you imagine tomorrow's misery without tomorrow's manna, of course you are going to worry. Tomorrow's manna isn't on the ground yet. You have manna for today only. In his great wisdom, God doesn't give you tomorrow's manna today. Otherwise, you would forget him and trust in yourself. I mean, that's part of the problem is that we begin to trust in ourselves and think that we're the only ones that can get us out of the problems that we're in. And Asaph runs to a good, good father. And he reminds us of this in, in Psalm 77, where he says in verse 13, and, and I want you to think about this. I'm gonna read seven through nine, and these are the questions that he asks about uh, God. And he says, but then he responds after he meditates upon the word of God and about the good news and then about the redemption of the people of God. And the response is verses 13, 14, and 15. So again, seven, eight, and nine. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? And then look at what happens after he spends time 
You know, and again, I think through the Holy Spirit working in us, thinking about God's provision, God providing manna for today, not worrying about tomorrow. He says this, your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. And then he goes on to talk about Exodus 15. Do you see the change that occurs? Now that change is a work of the Spirit of God in the hearts and minds of the people of God. I'll tell you what, I've been, I've been anxious at different times in my life. One of the times, I think, um, that the Lord showed me um, my inability to affect my life was probably when we were in seminary and we got pregnant with our first baby. And up until that point, I thought I was somewhat independent and autonomous, although a believer in seminary. And I remember the very, for the very first time thinking, I have no control over this baby in this womb. I can't do anything. And what it did is it raised my anxiety level. Now, the good news was I was in seminary, and so I was in the word of God, and I remember a professor saying, when you're worried, run to the Lord. But, but those situations in life that are outside of your control or different issues, you go, okay, Lord, you're gonna have to show up. And as you see him showing up on a regular basis, you begin to trust and have confidence in him a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. So that hopefully by the time you are ready to meet him face to face, when trials and tribulations and difficulties arise, you just kind of look back and you go, God's got this. He's going to give me manna for today. And I'm going to trust and believe in him. I'm going to walk with him. My hope is that we would grow in our trust. Uh, A general uh, in in a war that happened many, many years ago who was a Christian, he says this, and he would ride his horse out in the midst of battle, and he would ride it just not worried about what was going to happen to him. And somebody said, General, aren't you worried about what might happen to you? And he said this, he goes, my religious beliefs, or really his beliefs in the gospel, my gospel beliefs teach me that, teaches me to feel as safe in the battle as in bed. God has fixed the time for my death. I do not concern myself about that, but to be always ready no matter when it may overtake me. That is the way all men should live and then all would be equally brave. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, I pray, Lord, that we would run to you in the midst of difficulty and anxiety and fear, that we would not create false prophecies that may never come true. Father, that we would trust in the manna that you give today rather than worry about what might happen tomorrow. Father, would you help us? Father, when, it, when we are overwhelmed, Father, I pray, Lord, that the, the Holy Spirit, that you would come and comfort us, that your words of life and truth would remember us so that we would not be fragmented and scattered about. Lord, help us to have an honest prayer life with you. Help us to model ourselves after Asaph and the psalmist.
And Father, we pray, Lord, that we would give you all the glory that is due your name. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As I, um, let me just, I forgot this part. I forgot this part. Not only does the word of God help us, but I will say this. That song, Yet Not I, But Through Christ in Me, I love that song. Because, as a matter of fact, we're just gonna change it up. We're gonna, I wanna do that song again. Okay, we can do that. Isn't it great to be in charge? Because <laughs> I really like that song. We're gonna do it again. Because, here it is. When it says, the night is dark, but I am not forgiven. For by my side, the Savior, he will stay. I labor on in weakness and rejoicing, for in my need, his power is displayed. You know, music, I mean, when you get overwhelmed, run not only to the word of God, but to gospel songs that will lift your soul. They are manna from a good, good father.